So if you take your Bibles or your devices and turn with me to 2 Samuel and the third chapter, we'll get there in just a few moments. 2 Samuel chapter 3. After a couple of months, months of looking at Advent and Christmas and then our season of prayer and fasting, uh, we took a little hiatus to do all those things, but now we're back and we're back. Uh, at our look at the life of David, a man after God's own heart, I'm excited to say that next Sunday, uh, you'll be hearing from our own, very own, Josiah Johnson. He'll be speaking next Sunday, and he's going to be working with me around a message around David and his life. So looking forward to that. But we're here looking today at his whole story that really... <laughs> It belongs in an, a Netflix movie or involved, I mean, maybe the Game of Thrones. This is, this is every imaginable twist and turn you can think of. We're going to find it pretty much in this story. Everything's changed. Everything is different. Jonathan, David's friend, is dead. Killed in battle with the Philistines on Mount Geboa. <clears throat> His father, Saul, has killed himself. <clears throat> by thrusting himself onto his own sword. And Abner, the military leader for King Saul, has survived the battle and has gone back and has installed the one remaining son of Saul, Ishbosheth, who is 40 years of age. He's installed him as king of Israel. But there are only 11 of those 12 tribes that recognize that kingdom because the 12th tribe, Judah, which is David's tribe, has seen the handwriting on the wall and they've heard the prophecies and they know what God wants and they have gone to David and have installed him, anointed him as king of Judah. So we have two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, 11 of the 12 tribes, the southern kingdom, Judah, which is that particular tribe, and it's engaged these two groups into a seven-and-a-half-year civil war. And as we know, as our country and our history, civil war is never a good thing. When brothers are fighting against brothers, the harsh reality of that is devastating. So Samuel, for 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, summarizes what's going on this way. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. But look back in the second chapter, because we want to see how this war actually started. 2 Samuel 2 and verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maonim to Geboan. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon, which is about 23 miles from Hebron, where David is headquartered. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool, <clears throat> and the other on the other side of the pool. What a picture. Sitting at this still watering hole, this pool of Gibeon, 
are two figures in David's story. They are secondary figures who have now taken center stage. Abner and Joab. They're two military men, great warriors, fighters. They're facing off against each other. Now, Joab and his two brothers, Abishai and Azahel, are called the sons of Zeruiah. And they are probably the fiercest, strongest, most capable men in all of David's court. If you're familiar with the way the Bible reads, and many of us are, you'll, you'll not be surprised that someone is named and then given the title son of, and then their father's name. So son of, fill in the blank. So to hear these three, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel, the sons of Zeruiah, is not surprising. We see it a lot. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right? Which means thunder. But here's what's different. Zeruiah's not their father. Zeruiah is their mother. Here we have three of the strongest, fiercest men in David's court and their mama's boys. I enjoyed saying that. Not if they were standing here. <laughs> because they weren't really mama's boys in the way we think of mama's boys. But being sons of Zeruiah is a great consequence because you see, Zeruiah is also David's older sister. And you thought your family was messed up. You see, everybody comes to this church and they think that everybody's related to me. Not everybody. A lot of them, yes. Well, what do you want me to do? Send my family to another church? Come on. It's all in the family and that's good. There are other families, the Conleys, the Torreses, the Centers. We know these things, all right? It's okay to have your kids in your church. Right, Linda? Yeah. Yes, all right. So it's all in the family with David and his older sisters. You see, actually, David is probably closer to age to his nephews because he's the youngest of the family, and Zeruiah is the elder sister. And so David, at 30 years of age, when he gets installed as king of Judah, is probably very close in age to Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. They've been with him since the wilderness days crisscrossing the countryside as Saul hunts them down. They've been through a lot together. We've even heard about Abishai before because he's the one who's with David when they come upon King Saul who's sleeping by the campfire. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, says, let me take my spear and one strike and he's dead. But David forbids him to do it because he entrusts himself to God and says, God will do with Saul, for Saul is God's anointed. A lesson we should all learn. But as fierce and loyal as David's nephews were, they also caused him considerable heartache and grief. Throughout scripture, you can see where they weren't always on the same page with their king with their Lord. They could certainly fight the battles. They were great at that. 
But they were short-sighted and they lacked the necessary grace for kingdom building. They were hotheads and hardliners more interested in exacting revenge than in reconciling a nation. You're going to find in your life that there are a lot of people out there who are always ready to fight, but they're not always willing to reconcile. They're good at keeping on, but they're not very good at building up. They are experts at lashing out, but they're inexperienced at giving grace. These kinds of people will expect you to do it their way, and when you don't, they won't understand why. They're governed by what you could call the law of the instrument, or what commonly is referred to as Maslow's hammer, which says, if all you have in your hand is a hammer, everything you see is a nail. You only see one way of dealing with what you face. You see, when you resort to the law of the instrument, you don't have to rely upon the Spirit of God because that's what's in your hand. This must be what I'm supposed to do. Came to me, I got a hammer, that must be a nail. Your method overrules your relationship with God. And you resort to that activity versus being in step with walking in and living by the Spirit. And that is not what God, Jesus, wants for us. He wants us to abide in him that he might abide in us. He wants us to be in step with his Spirit. He doesn't want us just to resort to habit to the way we did it last week or last year or all our life. If your friends are the kind who can only do things the way they are used to doing them, rather than trusting God for a new direction, for new wine, and a new wineskin to contain it, then they're going to end up causing you heartache and grief. They're probably going to end up causing God heartache and grief also. If you're that kind of person that is handling Maslow's hammer, trying to hammer out everything that you come up against, then you're going to cause yourself heartache and grief. Don and I were talking about this on the way to the, uh, to the gathering today, and I like to share as much of my notes with Don as I can because her revelation is always so much better than mine. And so she's not, no, it's the same. We're good. Gosh, that didn't go over well. She got great revelation, though. And so she had some really good things to say about this. And she made this point. She said, this is a story that's a lot about the gifts and callings of God being without repentance. You see, David was called to be king, and Joab was called to be a warrior, and they were both really good at what they were called to do. But both of them messed up their calling along the way. Pretty much everybody I know doesn't stay true to the calling of God the way they should. We're imperfect. And God still chooses to use imperfect people 
to perform his perfect will. He's still in that business. But it is a warning for us that if we choose to just rely upon our gifting at the expense of the relationship required to obey him, then things are going to go wrong for us. Don't be guilty of being a son of Zeruiah when you should be a man after God's own heart. Well, our story continues. Two of these armies standing off here at this pool of Gibeon. And Abner yells over to Joab and he suggests a contest. He said, why don't you choose 12 men and I'll choose 12 men. This is kind of a standard military thing. You remember the story of Goliath coming out to contest the Israel army and he's yelling out trying to make a war game. And so that's what Abner is suggesting. Let's do a war game. You send your 12, we'll send my 12, and they'll square off and decide the victory, but it goes bad real quick. All 24 end up being killed almost instantly. And it blows up into a full-scale war, and next thing you know, Joab and his men are chasing after Abner and his men. Now, just as a side note, what's interesting to me is that 360 of Abner's men died that day. Only 20, only 20 from Israel, I mean from Judah died. David's men, they were tough. They were a good fighting machine. And so looking at verse 20 of 2 Samuel 2, it says, Then Abner looked behind him. Joab and his men are chasing after them. And Abner's running, and he looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? Because Azahel is said to have been faster than a gazelle on foot, and now he's chasing Abner. And Azahel answered him, it is I. Now let me just say, this is a really funny conversation that's going on in the midst of a full-out chase. They, they are running at each other, fast and furious. And Azahel says, is it you, Azahel? And Azahel says, it is I. <laughs> Maybe not like that. <laughs> Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. <laughs> wow, Abner, way to throw somebody under the bus there. Don't chase me, chase one of those other young punks over there. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to him, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? Sorry. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face to your brother, Joab? Don't you like the interaction that's going on right now? Sure's getting hot in here. But Azahel refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died. There he was, where he was. And all who came up to that place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. But they didn't stand still for long. Joab and Abishai Azahel's brothers are shocked. They've seen 
Azahel do such amazing, incredible exploits for David's army. They've seen this amazing fighting man kill multitudes of Israel's enemies. And now he's dead and rage comes upon them both and they begin to chase Abner and Abner and his men have now scurried in and found reinforcements with the tribe of Benjamin. And so Abner, as the night fell, yells out to Joab, hey, this is going nowhere. It's not gonna be good for any of us. Look what's already happened. And so in the dead of night, both sides, Joab and his men, return to Hebron. And Abner and his men return to Ishbosheth in Mahanaim. Wow. I can't imagine the velocity, no pun intended, that Azahel had to be running at for a spear, not the pointed side but the butt end side to pierce his body and ram through his whole torso. These guys were, they were fighting machines. But it's not over. Look at chapter three. Second Samuel chapter three, verse six. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, the same guy, was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizbah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Verse 8. That Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not, have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Verse 9. God do so to Abner. He speaks of himself in the third person. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now, you remember, we started this study several months ago, and you've read the story of David, and you know the promises made to David. Samuel came, and David was out in the field, and he's tending to his father's sheep. He's not even invited to the party where Samuel is going to anoint a new king, even though Israel still got a king. And so all the other brothers get paraded in front of Samuel, and Samuel says, nope, not any of those guys. Don't you have another and his dad's Jesse says, ah, well, yeah, I got this boy, this, this little red-faced boy. He's out there taking care of my sheep, but surely he's not the next king. And Samuel said, I'm not sitting down until you call for him. And so they called for him and they brought David. And as soon as David came in, the spirit of God said to Samuel, that's my man. My promise is upon him. 
And so Samuel anointed him king of Israel. So this promise has been stewing now in David for 20 plus years. You see, David is now 37 years of age. And probably that anointing happened when he was 12, 13, 14. We don't know exactly when. So for 20 plus years, David's understanding of promise was something still yet to be obtained. But now it's about to be realized through a person like Abner? Really? Are you kidding me? Why would God use someone like Abner to bring about his promise? Abner was just an opportunistic strongman who controlled the little puppet Ishbosheth in order for his own purposes to be served. He was making himself stronger, not really caring about the puppet king. Abner was having an affair with Saul's concubine. Maybe not, but come on. When he was accused of it, if it hadn't been true, don't you think he would have said so? He didn't. As soon as Yishbosheth blames him for having this affair, he doesn't say, I did not. He simply sidesteps and deflects the moment, which is what most people do when they're guilty. And now Abner, to get even, and is so enraged with this little puppet king that he is now going to snatch out of his hands the very thing that he gave to him and give it to his rival, David. Are you kidding me that God would use someone like Abner? Are we to believe that God will use just anybody to fulfill his promise? Yeah, that's exactly what we're to believe. God rules over the affairs of men. God is sovereign over everything we see. God doesn't step down off his throne. He is always on it. And God can use anyone he wants. So the story continues with Abner going through with this little plan. And there's a whole lot more that I really don't want to get into, not try to get the weeds. But I'll just say this. David all of a sudden now has six wives instead of two. I mean, David's, um, David's got some issues, too. It wasn't forbidden that a king could have multiple wives, but it does present a whole lot of problems. And really, in one sense, there is scripture that says you should probably just have one. But David's got six by now. Oh, and that doesn't even include the, Saul, the daughter of Saul, Michael, who is been, has been taken from him before he escapes out of Saul's court. And so a whole big long series, you see that he's got six wives now, and you're like, oh my goodness, golly, the marital bliss. <laughs> that was sarcastic. <laughs> and he's asking for his seventh. I'm like, dude, talk about complicated. Wait a minute, whose wife is she? She was given to another, what? I was telling Don, it reminds me of some of the dilemmas that they face in the church in Kenya because polygamy is still kind of prevalent out in the rural areas. And so what happens when a certain man who's a polygamist who has three or four wives comes to faith in Christ and they all want to come join your church? What are you going to do? 
I got to admit, as a pastor, that's never been a problem for us here. We got some problems, let me tell you. But I've never had somebody say, I've got four wives, can we join your church? We all want to be baptized this Sunday. Those are real issues they have to face there. I don't know what all happened here with David and Michael and whose wife is she. I just know that Michael was returned and David allowed Abner to come and visit him. And all goes well. David is seeing that God is doing something. He is doing a unifying, restorative, reconciling work that he is bringing all the tribes of Israel together, that God is fulfilling his promise and he's using a scoundrel like Abner to do it. But Joab has been away while all this is going on and Abner leaves in peace going to to start talking up with the elders of Israel so that they can begin to gather and set David in as king. And Joab returns, having been on a raid, and when he learns of this new allegiance, he is outraged. It's been over seven years, but he still remembers his brother Azahel. And he's livid. He goes into King David's court, into his, his presence, and he berates the king. How could you? Let this man go and come and come and go in peace and not exact vengeance for your servant Azahel. Without David's knowledge, Joab sends for Abner to return and with the help of Abishai, his brother, there in the gates of Hebron, they kill Abner. After seven and a half years of civil war and strife, right here on the verge of peace and unity, the sons of Zeruiah ignore God's king and take matters into their own hands. As David later would tell his son Solomon, who would succeed him, Joab shed blood in peacetime as if it were in battle. I think what makes Joab's revenge even more appalling is that Hebron was set up by God through the the man Moses as one of the six cities of refuge. These six cities were given in the Old Testament to provide asylum for sojourners and perpetrators of involuntary manslaughter. We read about it in Joshua, Joshua 20, verse 9. These were the cities. He's already named them, all six of them. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone, anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Hebron was exactly the place God appointed to offer refuge to someone like Abner. And when Joab asked him to return, that's the last thing that Abner receives. You see, the sons of Zeruiah decided Abner wasn't deserving of refuge. They decided, despite what God had said, and and enacted, and despite what King David had wanted, they decided to avenge their brother's death at all costs 
even if it meant disobeying the king and ignoring God. By the way, there's one more reason why David always referred to these men by their mother's name, Joab, the son of Zeruiah. At least I believe there's one more reason. You see, the meaning of the name Zeruiah means balm, the balm of Yahweh. That's the meaning of her name, a medicinal ointment used to bring about healing. How ironic, don't you think? That the very sons of the woman named Healing Bomb can't be agents of healing for others, not even in God's city of refuge. It makes me wonder what name has been given the church that we commonly ignore. And what mandate has been given to be a city of refuge that we as the church refuse to obey? Have we been called sons of healing balm? Daughters of healing balm? Residing at the gate of the city of refuge? And what do we do when it comes time for us to offer that healing? and offer that refuge? Are we exacting vengeance? Are we getting even? When they hit hard, do we hit harder? Do we get our pound of flesh? Do we get our reputation back? Is all we're concerned about what's ours despite what the king has said? Despite what God has proclaimed? So chapter three, it ends the same way chapter one did in sackcloth and ashes. Funerals, both of them. Chapter one, they've learned of Saul's death and all of Judah with David mourn the death of Saul. Now in chapter three, at the hand of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Abner is dead. And David, with all of Judah, including Joab and Abishai, are instructed to disrobe and put on sackcloth and cover themselves with ashes. And David walks behind the bier, the, the procession, the parade of this funeral. David is mourning and he is weeping and he is lamenting and he's making Joab and Abishai walk right there next to him. So what do we see in all of this? What's going on here? Civil war, manipulation, greed, power plays, sex, intrigue, murder, revenge, family dysfunction. I told you this story was made for Netflix. But we find it right here in the Bible. It's right here in black and white, in the word of God. David's story has not been edited or sanitized 
for viewing audiences. It hasn't been given a rating cleaned up so it could get a PG or, you know, for those that really want to see it, you get to see the R rated at the theater. David's story has not been inoculated. It's not been sterilized. It is just out there for all of us to read. And just like it, the story of redemption isn't sanitized either. It's not a fairy tale where knights come in shining armor or we have all the happily ever afters. The story of redemption, just like David's story, is unfurled for us in the middle of humanity's mess. Right there in the middle of it. You could step in the pile of manure as you're watching it go by. We wouldn't write a story like this. I wouldn't. I'd neatly wrap it up all the loose ends and tie it up with a bow. If I were writing the story, I would end it like a fairy tale where all the good guys win and all the glass slippers fit and all the magic carpets fly and all my wishes come true. But God writes his redemption story right in the middle of our lurid, violent, self-inflicted mess. David's story was written there. The story of Jesus is written there. The story of our redemption is written there. And thank God that it is. Because I don't need a nice, neat package tied up in a bow story about how things are going to all be okay. I need a savior who will come to me in the middle of my mess and who will share with me what I am having to face and will show me a way to live life in love of God and love of others and do it with him. I need a savior who is fully acquainted with my griefs, not one who presents me a sterilized story that seems really good on the bookshelf. We need a savior who comes into the middle of all of this that we live in and shows us his love and shows us his redemption and shows us his way. That's where God shows up. He uses people that we would never use to accomplish his promises that we never could. Where are you today? Is your mess in need of a savior? The good news is that that's exactly what he came to be in the middle of. And he doesn't leave you there. Wherever your mess is, he's got story and purpose and vision to take you through it onto the other side. He's made us more than conquerors. But he didn't find us that way when we first arrived. That means we've got to go through some things, just like David did, just like all of these, this cast of characters we've talked about did. But that's where God likes to show up. He uses people that we never would to accomplish 
his promises that we never could. Let's pray. thank you for the life of David, his story. It encourages us when we read it. Even when we find such atrocious and horrible details. Even when we find characters like Abner and Joab who are far from perfect. Who seem to be doing their own thing, exploiting people for their own benefit. Who are about their own vengeance and not about loving their king or obeying their God. Lord, help us to be men and women who are after your heart and not after our own interests. Lord, help us to live that way day in and day out because it's so easy to revert back to what's good for us what feels best to us, what makes us look good, what makes us feel good, what gives us comfort. But Lord, we don't want to be Abner or Joab. In this moment, we want to be David. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who are like healing balm that any time they would say our name, it would be like they'd have to say, and they're a kid of healing balm. Chris, a son of healing balm. Bill, Jay, Curtis, sons of healing balm, that it would be so attached to who we are that whenever someone said our name, they knew healing came with it. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be like that city of refuge where we don't exact punishment, but where mercy and grace rule the day and where people can hide under the shadow of your wings and find healing from your hand. Lord, I pray that you'd make us those kinds of people where we wouldn't resort to our own gifting at the expense of obedience to your word. Or we use our hammer to hit every nail we see rather than walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, living in the Spirit, never quenching the Spirit, doing the work of the Spirit. Help us to be those kinds of people, Lord. We commit this to you and these words to you. Use them in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name.